Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. Hello, and welcome to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. My name is Mark. Today I'll be interviewing my wife, Heidi, also known as So Heidi. And we're doing this in celebration of the one year anniversary, isn't that right? Yeah, episode 50, technically more or less one year of the podcast. It is. So we did some brainstorming and we thought it could be fun to turn the tables. Mm-hmm. Actually, we didn't do any brainstorming. I had a number of other ideas that were all shot down and then she said, I think you should interview me. Is that how it went? That's more or less how it went. Okay. Well, either way, I feel pretty good with um, I feel pretty good with this idea for the fiftieth episode. No, I think it's good. Yeah. And I think that you know, talking about what you've seen and done is um, from the past year over the span is really good. Yeah. So I should just set the scene. I was actually bit. just going to say we should set the scene. We should set the scene. We got a new deck on our porch just weeks ago, so we're on our back deck having a drink on a weekend doing this interview it is beautiful like 75 degrees sunny sun's gonna set in about an hour or two so i heard a sports ball game i think because i heard some cheering okay and our neighbor just pulled up and did their car alarm so if you hear a little background noise it's just because we're outside but it's nice and we're drinking if you hear a little we'll try to be quiet We're drinking spritzers. It's pretty mild. Yeah, we're, we're it's drinking. It's like we diluted down to like 5% alcohol. Yeah, seltzer and weak booze. Mostly seltzer. Um, well, let's get this going. So why don't you talk about the first thing you ever sewed or like really sewed? Um, you know, my first memory of making anything is actually pretty late in life it's not even until um maybe it was eighth grade but I feel like it was more uh high school and my mom taught me how to use her Viking Husqvarna machine it was um her I think it was the first machine she ever bought when she was young the same one you have now right yeah and I still have it she gave it to me which is amazing she gave it to me and got a different machine for herself Mm Um, and so I have her old machine, which is like just this amazing, it's dark maroon. It's all metal. It weighs like a hundred pounds. I dread moving it. And it's a great machine. And, um, I feel really lucky to have it. It's totally, I feel like beats any of the modern machines now. But anyway, I remember sewing, um, in high school and I, you know, she taught me how to use the machine but I didn't really utilize her to teach me how to sew. My mom knows how to sew very well. Um, she like made my eighth grade graduation dress, which I still have hanging in the closet. It's pink with white flowers on it. Um, maybe I should include a picture of that in the show notes. There you go. Um, anyways, and uh, so she taught me how to use the machine, like how to thread it, how to make it go forward, backwards, zigzag, all the basics. But um, I didn't really utilize her to actually teach me how to like sew any actual garments. So what I did was I just, I used to be a big, I, not used to, I still am, um, thrifter. 
and I would buy these graphic tees of any size, shape, whatever, you know, men's, kids, women's, what have you, and I was really buying them for the graphics, and I would um, take the graphics, I would cut them out, and I would kind of patch sew them onto um, white ribbed Hanes tank tops, like the ones men wear for undershirts. How punk rock of you. Yeah, and that was it. That's what I, that's what I sewed. I would sew a lot of that stuff. I mean, I would, I would like, I would buy old men's Levi's and cut them into shorts, you know, and let them naturally fray. And I guess I was always doing low level modification, but like as far as sewing I think, goes, I think a lot yeah. of people, girls in particular, like Did cut that. off jeans is yeah. ever since Duke's a hazard, I suppose. is a Yeah, I suppose. But sewing, that was it. And then I didn't really like do much you know I went out to college and later in my college years like junior senior year when I was working on my thesis was when I really started sewing and I decided I was gonna have a clothing line for my thesis I was gonna like build a business and I had my mom's machine I think I was like home for a summer and I was like I'm gonna do this project can I take my your machine with me to college and that's when she gave it to me and so I took it from California to Denver and San Diego to Denver and that's when I realized, like, I didn't really know how to sew. And I hired this woman, um, this awesome woman, and, like, I just went over to her house, and she taught me some essentials, and I ultimately wound up taking classes at a vocational school to learn, like, more in-depth pattern drafting and garment construction, and um, from there on, like, started sewing more complicated garments, um, which grew into my clothing line, and ultimately my my business um funklectic which i've talked a lot about before great name worst name worst name worst no, there's name. greatness I, in no, there no i hate it to this day i still like hate <laughs> oh when i tell people what the name was i'm like oh facepalm it was funklectic it was a it was a word sandwich of funky and eclectic and i thought it was so clever <laughs> because i thought it really enveloped like i'm funky and eclectic i'm making all these clothes they're funklectic but everybody called it funkadelic and it literally like even saying it now like makes me cringe okay we won't talk about that <sighs> let it let it be <laughs> let it be entered into the record that mistakes are easy to make yes and you'll have to find a way to live with them yeah you know what it's funny because i've <clears> talked to a lot of people about it since and they're like oh my god the first thing i ever started like i named it this horrible name and like i mean who knows maybe we look i'll look back on some of this stuff i'm doing right now and think it's terrible but that's okay there's a oh, yeah. saying that i love it's if you're not embarrassed <laughs> of the first version version of your product you launched too late and i think that on some level like you can always look back three months six months a year three years and feel embarrassed about what you were doing at that point in time but that's okay like at least you're doing something you're well, doing it that's, that's not isolated to, to the fashion business no it's not it's anything but i think that fashion in general no matter well not no matter but in a lot of places there's there's a time associated with it like yeah you know there's things are dated maybe a little harder than they could be in other areas yeah i've talked to a lot of designers um who say yeah you can look back on anything you designed even a year two three years ago and you mm -hmm. thought it was the greatest thing at that moment um i mean but i think now. there's some things that are timeless and classic but a lot of times you just look back <clears> and it's just even if it's not super trend driven you look back and you're like oh that was not the best but that's okay you know what maybe that's why people like working in digital art so much you know you can just 
you can easily lose <laughs> your five-year-old work you don't want to look at anymore but yeah sometimes you can keep bumping into that same dress on the street and there's nothing you can do about it it is what it is i think like you're you like you said it happens in any industry yeah yeah so you have a degree in design right emad graphic design yeah graphic design yeah and emad was electronic media uh arts and design yep that was my major at the university of denver yeah which we still live sort of close to or at it's least about, we're living close to it's about yeah. less than a mile north i can see it from here i can actually yeah yeah you can see it so you learned illustrator design principles color all the digital stuff and some of the terminology and things like that and you ended up in fashion so going to a school for graphic design and and you have a what minor in marketing and spanish uh-huh so marketing sort of related to what you do if not completely and uh i think that the design is as well but neither of them were fashion design so how um how well prepared were you to work in the fashion business like how much learning did you need or did you know the right stuff and only have to catch up here or did you have the wrong stuff and I mean, I um, I didn't know anything. Like, I didn't know what a tech pack was. I didn't know about lab dips or hand looms or strike-offs or, you know, how, like, collections got built and how, what the whole production and manufacturing process was like. I didn't understand any of that. Um, I mean, I like I said, I, I learned and, and knew enough about garment construction um, the, like the essentials of that. I'm not a technical designer, but I knew enough about that. And then, yeah, I had some of the design principles and I had the computer skills. And so, um, you know, it was that. And then me really learning, um, some of the fashion stuff on my own and having my own collections and doing fashion shows and having a little portfolio of work that with my computer skills has really got me in the door for my first job in the industry that being said yes I I got in the door and I was like I know some of this but I don't know what a lot of this is like I like I said I didn't know a lot of the fundamentals um but I learned all that on the job and my boss and and ultimately who then became my business partner in in my freelance and contract um agency that we run I she taught me everything. She taught me everything I know about like actually what goes into, you know, garment production and the whole design process and how everything works. And I think um, there was a minute that I like felt I wished I would have gone to fashion school instead. But, you know, at the time I just didn't know or I didn't really think that was an option, I guess, being a fashion designer. I remember a six month period where you had had said or at least believed he said i want to go to fashion school yeah. and, and you know in one of the major cities you know fit or whatever it might be i remember you yes. declaring that like you know uh, like coming out of a bad hangover saying i'm never drinking again <laughs> like, i'm going to fashion school yeah i did <laughs> i forget there when. was a while where i was like i really wish i would have gone to fashion school and maybe i should go do like a two-year program or something and that didn't last and I realized I didn't need to go to fashion school and I'm glad that I didn't because what I realized was, at least this is how I feel, I felt that the skills that I had coming into it, like, you know, some of the design eye and the design principles, as you said, 
you know, I learned those slash those I think are sometimes inherent. Um, and then some I people are artsy, some people sure. are technical. And some people just naturally have an eye, what have you. So, you know, I came in with that and I came in with the computer skills. And I think it was easier to come in with the, those two skills and then learn the other stuff, stuff. Learn, you know, what does it look like to produce a whole collection and manufacture product and source and pricing and like all that stuff. It's I felt product was, life cycle, really. Yeah, it was easier to learn on the job than looking back on it, what I then learned about fashion school and kind of how a lot of programs work. Um, I just didn't need to go and get those skills. The stuff I needed to learn was easy to learn on the job, at least for me. And maybe that's because I had such a great teacher on the job. Um, my boss, Anne, at the time was and still is a great teacher, mentor, very willing to educate, um, especially, you know, I think, and this is something I say a lot to my audience, but it's like, if you're willing to put in the effort to learn and you show drive and ambition there are a lot of people out there that are happy to teach you and take you under their wing Um, but you have to put in the effort to show that like you're trying to do this you're trying to self-educate and then you use them to supplement it's not like you just go to them and ask for everything on a silver platter Um, which I you know that could be a whole other conversation but that's something I see um happening is someone just wants everything spoon fed to them so anyways I was lucky to have a great mentor and a lot of those fashion skills were easy to learn on the job um versus the skills I came in with I was glad that I came in and started with those Uh, I think that a lot of people enjoy sharing skills with enthusiastic you know intelligent people yeah you know that's that's really more like collaboration sure which, which everybody likes yeah so I guess in this interview I have like I have some duty to maybe open up this stuff a little bit further since I I've generally seen your entire evolution into this career. Yeah, 15 years. Like the whole transformation, every phase I've I've seen or helped or had to fly with you, and and you've had much the same with me. Um, so I think it's important to just say that you know we came together initially for many, many reasons. And you were doing graphic design at the same time I was doing graphic design naturally in my life. And I was freelancing and we ended up collaborating on all sorts of things. And I was also doing more uh, music and was in bands. And we started playing shows and renting out larger and larger venues. And then I remember that with some of my music friends who are very close family friends with you. We were doing shows and you were doing the whole, you know, your own line and running the fashion show. I emceed some of that stuff even. Yeah, that was our we were band. doing all those collaborative events with music and fashion. and. Because I don't think that that stuff comes up much in your interviews that I've heard as no, the editor of them. It doesn't. And, you know, like all the work that you did, it's like, okay, you went to graphic design school. We get that. Probably heard that. And you have an agency and you learned on the job and we've heard that. But... When you went home from that job or weren't like say doing that day job, we were always planning, always building. What do you take away from that? Is that stuff contributing to what you're doing now and where you're going? Oh my God, 150%. Well, what was, what, what did you, what were some of the lessons learned or what like, you know, what well, muscles did you strengthen by doing some of these other exercises? Okay, so first of all, like, just to kind of clarify, because I have talked a lot about this before, but, like, this was when I was, um, I was out of college. 
my first job out of college, I was um, working as a receptionist. And all of this kind of started at that time. So I was working 40 hours a week at a job that I just didn't really enjoy. It was not what I wanted to do. Long story short, I fell into it, whatever. I don't really know what happened. That's okay. So we were doing all this stuff on the side. I was sewing and I was just producing all these garments. And I, I wanted to do something in fashion. And you as you said, have had a band and we're playing a bunch of music. And so we started collaborating and putting on these events and you would play music and I would do fashion shows and I started getting really involved in the local community and doing markets and trying to sell. A lot of them were failures. Some of them were successes. I remember some great successes on that. Yeah, some great successes, but I also remember a lot of really tough ones where we would set up the booth from like 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. and come home and I had made like $30. (laughs) Um, anyways, that all aside, I think that that was really the, like looking back on it, all of that stuff that I was doing on my own on the side at night after I got home from work on the weekends, um, is what got my foot in the door at my first job in the industry. Because if I had just had the graphic design degree, but no, I didn't have anything to show for fashion, that wouldn't have happened. Um, and so I think, I think it shows two things. One is it showed what my eye as a designer was, which some of that first stuff is pretty rough. That's okay. Uh, like I said earlier, we all have things we're embarrassed of. We all grow. Um, but second, it showed my drive and my ambition as a designer and as an individual. Uh, and I think it was a really good learning experience for me because, you know, we took that brand Funclectic and it started here in Denver with you know some dinky little fashion shows and like these dive bars um I mean it was you know uh, I think you're being a little mean I mean well some of them were rough some of them were a little bit more professional as the brand grew and we kind of learned you know we cut our teeth um and then we took it on the road and we did trade shows and we really kind of turned it into a business and I learned how to like sell wholesale and deal with buyers and put together line sheets and I kind of learned all that just by doing it and well, the, trial and error. The shared need. You yeah. had the same need as any other brand where bill or keep track of stuff. Yeah. But you asked like how do I think that contributed or contributes to what I'm doing now or or how the career built and that was the foundation. That was where it started. I don't think if I hadn't done any of that, I don't think I would be where I am right now because I don't know if I would have ever been able to break into the industry and to a job and gotten that experience and then been able to break out and go out on my own. Um, But that being said, you know, I had a conversation with someone recently and we were talking a lot about how it was um, a recent podcast episode and we talked a lot about how when you want something, or when you have an interest in something that is so strong, it's almost like an extension of you. Like, you have to do it. So none of that I was doing because I felt forced or because I had to or because it was a job. It was just because that's what I wanted to do. Right. Um, you know, you just do it. So I've often heard you, and you have a really wide spectrum on how you react to this stuff, um, but I've heard you talk about you know, smaller labels and startups and stuff like that. It's just being so dangerous and an easy way to lose a lot of money or something. And I think that you might have had more success than other people's first labels, but, you know, that's that's neither here nor there. Um, but you're going through all the same motions. 
really, you know, coordinating all of these yes things. Yes and no. So why is it no? Where's the no? Uh, in, the no is because the majority of the people that I feel like I hear from are saying things like they are just right. They have this idea and they want to put it into production, like out of factory. And they, they want to blink or snap. And they, they're going to hire pattern makers. They're going to get all their stuff together. They've got all their branding. They're paying a lot of people to develop all of this. And they're ready to go into production. And they're going to produce like even 50 units. I mean, 50 is not that many. But if you look at what the foundation is to professionally build and produce 50 units, it's very expensive. Right. And so I think what like... I don't know if scares me is the right word, but, and I shouldn't even say concerns me because it's not really of my concern, but I mean, it is because I, I do want to look out Does for Does it best bring you anxiety? People. I, yeah, but a lot of things bring me anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that's where I get a little like nervous when I hear people say like, oh, I'm going to have this startup brand and like, that's great. But wasn't your startup brand a gateway to... Yes, these things you're doing now. But I so, didn't like dump twenty five thousand dollars in to well, launch with production. Like I literally scrapped it together one step at a time. I funded it a little bit, not a little bit, a hundred percent with my own money, and then yeah. little by little, as I made money and as I learned what the market wanted, and as I did these craft shows and little farmers markets and I set up my booth I would learn what sold what didn't sell it would create more of what sold and I slowly built and then I took what was working and slowly I did at one point have some women making stuff for me but at that point it was mostly jewelry and accessories because that's what was selling and that's what was easy and that's what had the higher profit margin right. and so that's where I think there's something to be said with you know, kind of starting small. And it doesn't mean that you can't put any money into it because obviously you have to put money into it. But I think the scary part for me is when people want to just dump 10, 20, $30,000 because that is kind of what it takes at the end of the day if you want to professionally go into production and they want to just buy 200 units of this design that they think is brilliant and they have not done the, the foundation of learning the market, learning their customer, understanding what they want, making sure this is the right thing to go into production with. Because then what happens, before I say what happens, also learning about what it really takes to sell that product. Because it is hard to sell product, whether you're selling it online or whether you're doing pop-up shops or you're selling it wholesale, it is hard to sell product. And so I think what happens is people jump right into producing and ordering and buying a bunch of inventory and then this is where like literally breaks my heart i've seen it happen way too many times they go into production and they sit on all this inventory that they bought yeah they can't sell it and maybe it's because hey, you were sitting really on inventory it. of a different type i mean I, I you know this is an interesting discussion but it the, it's hard to differentiate what is a good bad experience and a bad bad experience in this too because yeah. I kind of the point I was I was interested in is like you're still like managing inventory trying to project stuff trying not to waste money ideally and some people waste money in whatever their endeavor might be 
I, uh, you know, did that help cement some of your skills of, you know, you're doing management of a complete creation of something in a lot of your projects where you, you start with the drawings and you end up with something in your hand and you're mm -hmm. kind of, you're kind of there every step of the way in one mm -hmm. way, you know, you were also doing that in, for your own brand, like a lot of these other, you know, startup brands. Do you think that that's a good solid experience to transition into? Maybe it's a good place to go is uh, don't lose your shirt, but maybe some startup lines is a good place to, to catch these skills. I do. And I, I advise people because people ask me all the time, like, you know, what could I do? What should I do? I actually just talked about this. Uh, it'll be released after this episode, but for the mailbag episode, like mm -hmm. someone asking, how do I start right. if I don't have any money? And I'm like, you start really small. You start by sewing a couple garments for yourself and you wear them out. Get your feedback. Get feedback. Talk to people. Then, you know, maybe you save up and you make a few more and you see what you can do with this. Um, Find a good noisy person. Give them a free one. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, it could be a long list of things. There's other routes. You know, people do Kickstarter, which can be hot or cold as far as success goes and monetary uh, balancing things out on a monetary level. But yeah, I think... I think there's validity in doing it because here's the other thing too, and this is what's true of, of people that I talk to who've done their own brand or who still are doing their own brand. You know, you don't regret it. Like even if you lose a bunch of money and it goes south or whatever happens, you may look back and you think, okay, I could have done things differently. I could have done things smarter, but you don't regret it. Um, I don't regret anything that I've done, and I know a lot of people that have had brands, even ones that have, like, completely tanked and flopped, and they, like, had to close out their inventory to the thrift store, or, that's not even close out, that's just donate, yeah. or to eBay, or, you know, to Ross, or whatever. Like, you don't regret doing it, because you learn a lot, and it's experience you go through. So I guess all I would say is start small, be smart, don't get in over your head, don't try to move too fast. And like learn what you can as you go and just get get advice and expertise from people who are willing to give it to you and from people who have been there before. And, um, you know, it takes time to mm -hmm. build something. Oh, completely. And uh, I think that's where it gets scary is someone who's like, I want to have this brand up in three to six months or, I mean, <laughs> you know, and they just dive in with all their money and their savings and they just buy all this inventory and then it's like, poof gone what hey there's do? there's going to be newbies and and yeah. as, and and bad assumptions in any business anywhere yeah. so with one year down give or take on the podcast what are some key insights or revelations you've had talking to everybody and producing this mm, super interesting so this is actually a conversation I've been having with this woman, Robin, and you will hear her on the podcast soon because she and I are collaborating for these little mini episodes. We don't know what they're going to be called yet, but ultimately um, they're kind of picking out themes across all of the episodes because here's the thing, whether you're launching your label, whether you're being uh, a freelancer or whether you're, you know, working as an employee, those are kind of the three big categories we talk about on the show. There's a lot of themes that come up over and over. So some of the key takeaways um, that I've seen is providing exceptional 
value or providing an exceptional experience. So if you're an employee, like doing a really kick-ass job at your job, doing the extra credit, which is something I've kind of been coining lately. I'm like, what's that extra 5 or 10% you can do to go above and beyond what's expected of you? If you're a brand, what does that look like? Maybe it includes, maybe it's like having a handwritten note in your orders that you ship to people. Um, you know, what is that? What is it that you can do a little bit above and beyond to make yourself stand out? And when your customer gets the product or has an interaction or experience with you, they think, wow, that is so cool what that brand's doing. Um, you know, as a freelancer, that just means like going above and beyond for your, your clients, giving them with something they, giving them something they didn't quite expect. Um, so going above and beyond, doing an exceptional job is a huge trend I see in people that are really excelling. Um, one I just talked about is starting small and starting and going slow. Right. It's like not diving in and getting in over your head. And again, that can go with anything. I mean, looking back, I quit my job with like no real plan. I mean, I had a plan that I was going to freelance. And then the first year I like didn't make a penny. Um, so that was not the smartest in hindsight, whatever. I worked it out. But, you know, start slow. Like, what does that mean? Maybe that means, like, doing some projects on the side of your day job. Maybe that means starting your collection really small and slow. Like, any of these things that are really awesome in life, they take time to build. So start small, go slow, take your time, do things right. Huge trend. Um, knowing your customer, insanely big. Like I said, kind of goes hand-in-hand with starting small. Like, go to these events, see what people like, see what the feedback is. Don't just make something because you think it's brilliant. Um, at the end of the day, you need to collect money from other people. So what do they think is brilliant? What do they love? What do they hate? How can you make it better for them? That's something I apply to my day-to-day business and successful fashion designer. I talk to people all the time. I'm on Skype all the time. You can win. You're a witness to that. Yes, I am. I, I constantly engage with my customer and my audience to know what they want, what they love, what they hate, what can I do better, getting feedback. Again, that goes whether it's your brand or whether you're doing freelance or whether you're in your job. You know, understand who you're targeting with this product and why are you, how can you make it better for them? Um, And that comes in the form of talking to them. Uh, You know, that can also go, come in the form of, um, you know, if you're working in an employee role, talking to your boss and your coworkers and understanding, like getting some feedback. What do they love about the way you work? What can you do better? you know, just getting to know the people around you and then doing a great job in a way that best helps everybody. Um, so I would, I could go on. I would say those are some of the big ones. Doing an exceptional job, uh, going slow and starting small and really going about things smart and understanding and knowing your customer. Whether your customer is the person that's buying the end product, whether the customer, you know, in other words, might be your client or your boss, but like who are you doing the work for and then making sure that the work that you're doing is best serving them. And that comes in the form of talking to them and getting feedback and doing engagement. Okay. So I'm going to try to tighten the screws down on you a little bit. Okay. I asked you what revelations or takeaways. Now you, you've re- I think you've just reinforced things that like at least two of those you had cemented before you started doing your podcast, I would say. Exceptional work, absolutely. We've been talking about that for for five years. Yeah, but those are still trends that I see 
Okay, so you're looking for new revelations or takeaways? So your answer's fine, but I want you to actually think about and tell me, okay, uh, we've done some 50 whatever interviews yeah. and a lot of setup. Yeah. What, what either maybe formed in your mind later or hit you in the podcast that was just didn't expect, changed your view on something? You know, what, what was an aha moment that was provided to you by, by your interview? Interviews. Like Inter by, well, I'm talking those. about by an interview, yes. By an interview, okay. Or multiple ones. That's, yeah, that's a harder question. Um, I mean, yeah, you're right. All of those are kind of things I have always, not always, but more recently known and understood and then have been reinforced by what I have heard and And, and you could say that those are, those are a takeaway from, you know, a revelation in the podcast because um, this pattern started to form that you're working with. But who, who did you talk to and you were just like, I didn't know that or that's interesting or I would have never thought about it you know, in that, in that particular manner, if you hadn't had that conversation. Okay. So I don't, okay. I'm, I'm actually thinking of one example, but then there's a broader example that I actually <laughs> would never have thought of. Okay. Okay. So there's multiple examples of this. The one that's coming to mind is a conversation with Anna, uh, or I think it's pronounced Anna. Um, sorry, Anna of Vimora. And she is a, uh, design and development agency out of the Chicago area. She helps brands with start through, through initial concept through bulk production. And she, um, the key thing of her, she, her interview was being niche. And like, I've kind of always understood this concept, but she was telling me this story about this brand she works with that they help support, um, that makes uh oh god i'm gonna forget the name but the what are the little dresses that the um german beer women wear are you the, really asking me about something like that you know those little like they're like green and they've got <laughs> i could i could say looks like them. the saint Pauli's girl yeah uh, they're kind of bavarian yeah oh, i and don't this know the proper woman name has this company and she is like killing it <laughs> she that's like all she makes is this um these Oh, I can't think of the name of these little dresses. Anyways, and she, like some people buy them because whatever, maybe it's a costume or I don't know, something. Um, she, she sells to a lot of restaurants. That makes sense. For uniforms. And she is doing amazing. And so the, the takeaway was kind of twofold. Is one, don't like discount all these weird, interesting, super tiny little niche markets that still need clothes, right? <laughs> uh, no, hey, they, seriously, Those though. people over there, you see them? They need clothes, too. Yeah. And it could be so niche, but, like, if you are the one person in that market that is doing the best job, it's like you're a much bigger fish in a smaller sea or ocean. Um so I, th I think it kind of opened my eyes to two things, and those are the examples that I'm looking at, or I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of. But right. um, one is, you know, this idea that, like, fashion is 
everywhere and quote unquote fashion, like whether you want to call that fashion or not, I don't know, it's still clothes. The need for clothes? Yeah. Some some are just more appealing than others? Yeah, and like you may not, like if you think that's a really cool market and you're excited about it, it doesn't have to just be fashion for fashion's sake. Um, so I think it was this whole idea of like, wow, what a tiny, tiny, tiny little slice of the pie but like you don't need that big of a slice of a pie to do something really awesome with your brand, with your business. You don't need to be this multi-million dollar, even this multi-hundred thousand dollar thing. It's amazing what you can produce as one person with a few maybe contract freelance workers in a tiny, tiny, tiny little niche market that you maybe not wouldn't have even looked at as quote unquote fashion in the first place. That's a fascinating concept to me. Well, we've uh, I think we've talked about this many times. Uh, there's the thousand fan model. Yeah. You know, if you can get a thousand people out there to give you $50 a year because they like what you do. And in this case, let's say you could make $50 profit from yeah, a thousand people. Yeah, that's $50,000. You know, that's enough to sustain you and allow you to... I mean, no overhead. That doesn't count like expense, like if your garment costs 20 Well, you know, we don't want to, we don't need to, we don't need to, you know, uh, dive into the minutia, but there's plenty of people who make less than that and survive just fine. Yeah. Some of them have families and children. You don't need this giant thing. Yeah. So if you really like what you do or you have a unique idea, like maybe there is a micro niche, a micro environment for you. That's a great, yeah, that's what it is. That's great. Because, well, you're the authority on these St. Pauli girl-looking costumes. Or not I'm costumes. I'm like killing myself. I can't think of what that little outfit is I want to say lederhosen, but I think that's... I think it might be. Really? Yeah. I feel like those are the, the pantyhose things. But I, I'm notoriously underdeveloped on my fashion terminology. All right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's okay. <laughs> Everyone knows what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple terms in there that sometimes I... Uh, I'm not, I'm not so the micro niche and um, the fashion can be anything, anywhere. It doesn't have to be this runway stuff. And you don't need that much to like make a success. It can be this micro slice of the pie. Interesting. So I wanted to get you to talk about um, something that I thought was really cool and you have a lot of passion behind it, is the idea of how you see things that you create on a screen turn into delivered boxes with the physical product <laughs> in it, the opening of a Christmas present. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about that a few times in the past. Like, I, to me, I think that's a big part of what you do and where the love comes from, where the passion comes from, because that reinforces everything you're doing and it feels, you just love it. I hear about it all the time. I do. I remember the very first design that I ever worked on. It was at my first job in the industry. It was doing lifestyle and golf apparel, which I still do a fair amount Was it a vest? It was a vest. Right. And, you know, here I was, like I had gone to school for graphic design, as we talked about. I had made a bunch of my own clothes that I was selling and wearing for myself, but those were all garments I had, you know, went to Joann's and <laughs> Convince bought Convince this company to hire you, almost. <laughs> I had gone to Joann's and bought fabric and I had sewn up garments and, and that's what turned into the garment, right? Is this idea in my head and maybe I did a little sketching and, and turned it into a garment. But I had never 
sat down in Illustrator and sketched an entire garment and designed all this stuff and then put the specs together and sent it off to a factory and then a couple weeks later a box shows up and there's a prototype inside of this thing that used to just be like a line drawing in Illustrator with some call outs. And the first one that I experienced that, um, it was pretty phenomenal. It was this bay, like khaki colored beige vest with these embroidered flowers all over it. It was terribly not my style, but that was okay. Like that didn't really matter. And you know, you work on it forever. And I remember the owner of the company, uh, names withheld, <laughs> not that anybody would know, but uh, I remember the owner of the company. She was a real tough nut. Um, and she would hover over my shoulder while I was working. And it was like super high intense anxiety. I'm like sitting there sketching an illustrator. She, she had was, a lot of the, uh, at least from your stories. And I met her like twice. Yeah. She had uh, the Devil Wears Prada character to a degree. Yeah, it was, that think, wasn't her. No, it, that wasn't totally her, but there were some, some parallels. Yeah, there were similarities. So she would hover over my shoulder and I remember her like, like sometimes she'd even just pull up a chair like right next to the corner of your desk and just sit there and you're like, oh God. Thank you. That helps me work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No pressure. No pressure. And I mean, I was like so young and it was my first job in the industry and I was like, oh my God, my heart's pounding. I'm like sweating. Um, <laughs> I'm a big sweater. I think I've <laughs> talked about that before in emails. Anyhow, um, and I remember this product in particular, like we, she and I sat and we tweaked over the, it was this like florally vine pattern that was ultimately embroidered onto the fabric that was then turned into the garment. And I was designing the garment and I was designing the vine pattern that was embroidered on the textile. Right. And we tweaked over that and the repeat for it for like ever. You know, so you sit behind a computer screen in Illustrator and you work on this digitally and you print it out and you look at full-scale artwork and the whole, you know, process and stuff. Yeah. But then, like, nothing beats when the when a garment comes back from the factory and then it's, like, this real tangible thing that you can touch and hold and feel and, like, put on your body and you're like, I designed that. I drew that on the computer or maybe by hand. I'm not a hand sketcher. Everybody knows that. Um... And then that turned into a real garment. And, you know, that was, what, some, over a decade ago, that first one happened. I would say that'd have to be about 08 area. No, it would have been 07, I think. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it would have been before 08, so probably 07. So, you know, I mean, there's nothing like that first one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That first garment that you get back that's actually a real garment from a sketch. There's nothing like the first one, but the feeling never dies. Like even to this day, I still get really, really excited to open boxes of submits, whether it just be, you know, a strike off, which is just a swatch of fabric with the screen printed artwork on it to approve for either layout or color or quality, whatever you can approve it for various things. But, um, I never get sick of receiving those submits. Again, maybe it's a portion of the garment or the textile or the fabric, or maybe it's the entire garment itself. You know, it's you, you just don't get sick of seeing those ideas that went from a line drawing to an actual physical thing in your hand. Um, it is. It's like getting those boxes. It's always exciting to open them and see what's inside. It's like you're like a kid on Christmas morning. And... That is something I do really love about this industry is like you turn this digital sketch into a real life product. I mean, that happens in other industries too. Yeah. But. 
No, no, you know, obviously not everything's been digitized yet. <laughs> yeah. There are some real world stuff. Yeah. Um, I remember with some of the jewelry that you were doing, getting, uh, I was picking up the orders basically from the laser cutter and you were sending oh, them. Oh yeah. I mean, you've been manufacturing, you've had so many different times where you've taken, let's say a digital thing and turned that into something physical. Uh, we were cleaning the garage recently and I ran across a punch you had made. We still have it. Yeah, we still have, I mean, that was expensive, probably hundred bucks or something spent on that. I forget, but that was when I was making all the guitar pick jewelry and I bought, I had a, a die. A die. A metal die custom made in the shape of a guitar pick. Cause I, I wanted to, I went on this like- It's a credit card. It was a credit card. Yeah, it was credit card earrings in the shape of a guitar pick. And they are actually good guitar picks. Some of my guitar playing friends told me. So- They used, they used your So two earrings. things happened with those. And then there's a funny story that you're gonna love on oh, the side God. of this. But um, one, so I, they don't do it as much anymore, but like they used to, and they still do do it. You know, when you get like a promotion in the mail for a credit card, they actually send you like a, a credit card that has like the fake numbers, one, two, three, four, five. It's, it's an actual well, they, credit card. They know you're gonna open the envelope because there's something yeah there's something you know stiff in there it feels and like a credit card you don't want to throw paper. a credit card out everybody's like seinfeld at that sometimes they're paper those card their credit cards are like cardboard but some yeah. of them were actual plastic and so i started collecting them because i thought as really did most cool of your family members and then my mom was collecting them and my mom had her neighbors collecting them and then my mom i think i know the point. story you're gonna try to yeah. tell she was collecting, she was saving ones that of her credit cards that had expired, which you don't get that many of those. You, you maybe get like one or two a year, but then she had her friends saving them. So I had all these people collecting credit cards for me <laughs> and had this huge stack of credit cards that I, the goal was, and then that's what we got the punch made for. I remember I found this really cool guy to make it for me and yeah. it was awesome. And he like, this is a welder type of guy thing. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and so then I would punch the, the guitar picks out of the credit card which and I turned had, those into jewelry, which, which was like part of the, my line that really took off. That which I, I also to had to help you build a uh, high-pressure rig to be able to, to put. Them. Yeah, to put to create the the because the hammer was just not what, no, worth it. You it just can't sit there and bang it with a hammer. It was not really that way. So we used so. soft wood <laughs> and we used a uh, crank and we built that for you. We did build build a little jig that and we built our own cards. little manufacturing facility again. And then I had like all these credit card these guitar picks built out of credit cards and then they got turned into jewelry and then that was part of my recycled line so we got a we got a drill press i believe to help make the drilling of those easier yeah I rem i'm just you know there's so many different steps so i know the story you're going to tell right we're it's at the safeway we're at line and safeway yeah at the grocery, grocery store, store. Our local one <laughs> like yeah. where we know the checkout people right <laughs> and I'm like collecting these credit cards and I don't know if like, whatever. I just had the, I had a jacket on and I just had a bunch of these credit cards in, the, in my pocket. Some of them were expired or debit cards, whatever. Some of them were the sample ones that come, the promotional ones that come in the mail. But I had a stack of credit cards in my pocket, like probably like an inch or two thick, a substantial amount of credit cards. And we're in line like paying and I reached in my pocket to grab like chapstick or something. I don't even know what was in my pocket. That I was you were grabbing. like paying or something, I think. And this huge stack of credit cards <coughs> comes like flying out of my pocket and like sprawls <laughs> all over the checkout line on the floor. Didn't I just walk away from you like and I didn't know like, you? I am so <laughs> embarrassed. <laughs> Who is this woman? We weren't married at that point, I don't think, but you're like, 
who is this girl I am dating? She just like flailed oh, out. Oh, we were a couple years into a relationship. 30 credit cards of her pocket in the line at the checkout at the grocery store. Well, I was the same era as and you. And we're like on our hands and knees and you know, they're like really you. hard to pick up because you like can't get your nail under them. <laughs> It was embarrassing. That was the same uh, era where I remember the infamous latte drop. Oh, my hand went through a weak spell where I yeah. literally would like just drop things out of my hand. It was the weirdest thing because it was in that same safe way and, and we a latte glass jumped to the floor. To the coffee shop and then I would like just drop my latte and <laughs> I would sadly mope back to our local coffee shop and I was like, I dropped my coffee. And they would always give me another one for free. Because they're great. Because they're great. We still go there. Yeah, they're a great coffee shop. Just looking at my notes here. This is not going to go the way you think it is. Oh, throwing me a curveball again? Your podcast has a, I'm going to say famous and standard closing question for all of your guests. <laughs> sure does. And I was wondering if you would want to and this podcast talking about your favorite answer so far. Yeah, we can do that. We can do that. So the question for some people who maybe didn't hear you can set you can set that up too. That's that's all yours. Well, we can't just go into this blindly. Okay. So the question is, and I will give credit right now to my lovely husband you don't have who to. came up with this question. And I think I think my audience has a um, love-hate relationship with this question. Because I've gotten some feedback from people that say, God, Heidi, that question at the end is so awkward. You ask it and the guest like always pauses. They don't know what to answer. <laughs> and maybe you should reconsider the question. I've had people tell me that. Um, but, but I like the question because it stumps everybody and we often do <laughs> side note little behind the scenes glimpse here we often do have to edit out like 30 to 60 seconds after i ask the question <laughs> because the guests get so stumped but then i re-explain it and they always come up with a brilliant answer and so i like it because it makes them think really hard and then it does inspire some really interesting answers that said, if you've been listening to the podcast for any amount of time, you know the question is, what is one thing you wish people asked you about working in the fashion industry but never do? Right. And what is the what is like one of the most inspiring answers I've ever gotten? Is that what the question? Yeah, what is uh what is uh, I wrote it down as what is your favorite answer so far? And just a quick note on, on that question since you gave me credit. Um, I think that everybody and ev anything that they're interested in, be it a hobby, a profession, your car maybe, you're always getting asked this small collection of questions. Mm -hmm. Nobody, nobody asked me about this mm. other thing. Yeah. So that was kind of where the inspiration came from. Yeah, I know the, it, I know the answer. Yeah, yeah. And, and offering every one of your guests to say, I work in this profession, and you know what? Nobody ever talks about this or asks me about this. Mm. Uh, you know, it's a really handy question. So, so I want to talk about your favorite answer so far. Yeah. And if you want to answer the question too, that's also there for you. Um, <laughs> okay, well, let's start with the favorite answer. Okay. And then I actually have a couple other things I, I did want to throw out um, aside from that question. But you know what is actually really cool? 
while we had this back and forth banter about the question, I uh -huh. thought of my favorite answer. So thank you for giving me that, <laughs> buying me that extra 60 seconds while I was thinking in the background. And you know what's really freaking cool is the first guest that I ever had on the podcast, Bjorn Benston, episode one, one of my favorite guests to date. He is amazing. I've met, yeah. I, we, we know each other in real life. He actually took my Illustrator course um, when it was a, still a real live workshop in New York City and he came into my class and, and we met there and kind of became contacts in the industry and, and uh, I reached out to him for the first interview and his answer, and he didn't even pause, I don't think we had to, um, we didn't have to edit his, his answer was, what is one question nobody ever asked you about working in fashion that you wish they did? Oh yeah, and I, he said, I remember the answer actually. Do you? I do. He said, are you happy? Yep. And he said, you know, <laughs> I think there's this level of assumption that people, people think, oh, you work in fashion, like how glamorous, how cool, how amazing, rah, 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 like all these beautiful, fluffy things. And he's like, nobody ever asks you, like, are you happy? Do you really, do you love what you do? And, um... You know, to this day now, we've done 49 other interviews. Uh, I've gotten a variation of that answer maybe a couple more times, maybe two or three. I don't, I can't remember the exact guest off the top of my head. But people have kind of said variations of that. Not many. But I just thought, you know what, I love that because I think it's so easy to assume, you know, especially if maybe you're like thinking of going into the industry, um... And, and, you know, that could be a great question to ask someone who, you know, just like, are you happy? Or do you still really love this? Like some years later, however long it's been that you've been in the industry. And I think that um, it's an important question to also ask yourself because I think it's good to do accurate self-assessment and to kind of look at like, where am I at? How am I feeling? You know, you can't just snap your fingers and make a change, but if you really, truly do analyze, like, am I happy? You may be, and that's great, or you may not be. And then you kind of have to take it into your own hands to think about, okay, what could I do to pivot? And like, what might that actually look like? And you know, that could be a whole other conversation. But I think it's an important question to ask. Um, Maybe whether it's your friend that's working in the industry or your coworker that's working in the industry or your boss and you're looking at like, where might I be in five years? Um, and then, as I said, I'll just reiterate because I think it's also an important question to ask yourself. I think, uh, I think that answer, which came in the form of a question. Yeah. I think. Well, the question solicits an, a question. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, is that that is probably one of the questions that nobody is asking. No, of, of one of the most important questions you could ask. That's probably the one that we should be asking more. Yeah. Your boss should be asking you. You should be asking your employees. Yeah, you should be yeah, asking yeah. yourself. Yeah, even I said I was saying more like sideways and upward. You should be asking, but it should also be downward. It should, yeah, asking. in every in every direction, you should be asking that question. Yeah, which is really interesting. Yeah. So we um. It's it's kind of poignant that that was, you know, S one E one. The first episode we did. It is poignant, but that's really one of the one of the answers yeah. I love the best. No, and I think you're right because I've I've edited all of your podcasts and yes, you listened to just about all of them. Sometimes in the room live with you, um, but 
we went into this interview and I, I said, hey, you can, what questions do you want me to have? What, what soapbox do you want me to build for you to, <laughs> to, uh, to talk off of in, in this, you know, is there an agenda? And you didn't come back with anything. I said, no, I just, just ask me whatever. I just want it to be an organic conversation. I don't want to, I don't want to give you questions to ask me. That didn't feel right. Well, it happens a lot. Okay, maybe well, not in your, maybe not in your podcast, but it happens out there and that's neither here nor there again. So I, uh, I sit spent about a week, maybe two weeks just thinking about it. And I wrote down my questions, which I used here today. Yeah. And what was, um, what was the stuff that I missed? What did you want to talk about? Cause you already hinted once at that. What, what's, what were the other things you wanted to hit on before we close this out? Well, I would say, uh, I think there's really just kind of one thing and, um, you know, uh, I think you're going to like this point I'm going to make, but Uh-oh. well, cause we've been talking about it. Um, but I've always like made this comment of, um, I've always told people to just like, I'm like, just get started, just do something. Um, and my good friend, Trisha, who was on the show with Hello World Fashion, she and I have also talked about this. Like you want to work in fashion, do something. What does that mean? What does that look like? I don't know. For you, it may mean or look like something different. Um, but do something. Like, whether that means, like, starting to sew some clothes for yourself and wearing them out and seeing what people, how they react. You know, I, I don't know what it looks like for you, but just do something. So I had always kind of said that. But, like, that feels really, like, tough to put a finger on like just do something what the, what the f does that mean it also means maybe it, it almost implies you're not doing anything <laughs> or not doing enough but but then this is a conversation i've had with people too is like sometimes people aren't doing anything they're talking a lot they're talking about this idea they have this thing they want but they're not actually doing anything they so got like, good seo <laughs> yeah i don't know what that looks like like start doing research start sketching an illustrator putting some designs together like i don't know maybe it goes somewhere maybe it doesn't but like do something and so that being said, we heard a, um, one of the guys on the tech shows that you listen to and, um, every morning while cooking breakfast, I get to listen to as well. <laughs> uh, and he said, and I'm like, literally, it's been like maybe three or four weeks since we heard this. And I've like, cannot you know, forget this. I point. know it. I know it. And he said, there's two great, there's two best times to plant a tree. One is 30 years ago. The other is today. <laughs> and I look at this podcast, and technically speaking, we planted the tree of this podcast about a year ago. Sure. And I wish I would have planted it three, five, ten years ago. That's okay. I didn't, but I, I planted oh, it. Oh, I was there pushing you back then, too. You were. <laughs> and I wasn't ready and all these other things. And I respect that. But, like, God, as soon as... You can plant that tree, plant that tree. You know, I look back at like, I was having another conversation with a friend the other day too. I was like, you know, I look back and like the YouTube videos I started creating some 10 years ago almost. Mm-hmm. Which side note, yes, you pushed me to do as well. I didn't solicit that. Encouraged me to do. <laughs> um, I'm not here to take credit for those, any of Those, I'm glad I started stuff. doing those, you know, some 10 years ago. And like, you know what? Oof, they are rough. Those early ones are rough. I had no idea what it was going to turn into or what it was going to be. But I started doing something. So the concept of planting that tree, 
and you never know what it's going to grow into. You don't know if it's going to have red flowers or green flowers or giant leaves or tiny leaves or like whatever it may be. You never know. You cannot predict what it's going to grow into. But plant that seed today. Like just do it. So I just want to point out, I, I'm not trying to get credit for any, like you guys <laughs> say, yep, husband, husband's idea. I have been here with you, helping you and by your side for the entire, the entire yeah, path so far. I, I got on the plane and, and traveled to Philadelphia and other places and, and did trade shows. Uh, when you, when you were not quite ready to be the salesperson for your line, I remember just oh my God, faking you it. Did making it and faking it. And I don't, I don't go around looking for that credit. I just, you know, this interview is a, has a lot to do with the fact that I've been right there with you the whole time and supporting you. And, yeah. and just as much as maybe I do get credit for a couple of things out there, um, you've given the same, you know, inspiration and support for me and all my endeavors. And that's, this podcast has nothing to do with, uh, with those, but we have a, a good two way street. And it's based on engineering and creativity and, and there's love above all of that. And I think that that's really unique. I think that surround yourself with people who are creative like you and you're going to, you're going to grow. And it doesn't have to be people that are creative. I think it has to be people that are supportive and encouraging and that push you. Right. Yeah. I think you're right. It should be a little bit more broad than creative. We've been fortunate to be similarly creative. Yeah. But the support is really the most important thing and having somebody give you that feedback and it is and convincing you that you can do it even though you don't think you can oh my god the con- yeah <laughs> uh it's it's true and that's something i also speak of a fair amount is just um you have got to surround yourself with people that and you know this is like so cliche but who people who pick you up and who tell you you can do it and encourage you when you fall down and that's definitely been you obviously really strongly for the last 15 plus ish years <laughs> um you know us living together and stuff but um you know my I've been lucky enough that my mom and dad have been insanely supportive and my sister um and uh I've had a handful of friends who've like made weird comments about stuff I've done nothing super negative but just weird comments of like they kind of stick in the back of my head of like well, why are you doing that like, why don't you just have a job? Like, I don't want a effing job. Like, this is my this is <laughs> this is my job, even though it doesn't ever feel like a job. But um, oh, it feels like a job. I hear. Yeah, no. I get it. I get near full. It feels like work. Yeah, it, it feels like, feel like work. A job. Okay. Um, but you know, I think that I luckily have those people immediately around me by default with you and my parents and my sister. Sure. Like the people, the four people I'm closest with. Um. You know, and then outside of that, I've kind of found my group and my mastermind group and my tribe and my people. Um, I know some people aren't as lucky to sort of have that built-in support network. Um, and that's really, really tough. Like, I I, I empathize with that. I can't understand. I, I, I've never experienced it firsthand, so I don't want to say I understand what you're going through. But I have heard and can only imagine that's really, really tough. So you've got to find those other people. And whether that might be friends you find online or communities you join or like what have you, you gotta find it because you cannot do it by yourself. You cannot do it unless you have people encouraging you, not even like telling you what direction to go, but just making you feel good that you're like doing something that you care about and that matters. And um, 
So yeah. you you are fortunate. So you're thanking all those people out there. <laughs> yes. I was not Thank trying. Thank you. I was Thank not you. trying to drag that out. It just Thank seemed like it 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 went a little wide. To my husband, wide. mom, dad, and sister Robin. What about the fan base out there? How how yeah. are you? Yeah. I mean. Oh boy, good thing you're here to tell me what I should be saying. So this is actually a great time to to uh, to kind of close the interview out and talk about yeah wait. talk about how no one person can see the full picture. No. No matter how hard you you try. No, I mean. And we we're fortunate to see a little bit more together, <laughs> but there's still so much more to be seen on this picture. Um, yeah, so I'll, here's what I'll end with. Um, to anyone out there who's ever written me a nice email that has been supportive and has said thank you and, and maybe what you've gotten out of some of the content I've created or how it's inspired you or whatever it is, um, there's a good chance I have printed your email out and hung it up on the <laughs> wall behind my desk because that is sort of my wall of reminders. Um because, you know, there are fully days where, or even sometimes, God, weeks where I'm like, what the hell am I doing? I suck. This is terrible. I can't do it. Like, I want to crawl into a hole and die. Uh, maybe not that extreme, but I want to crawl up in a fetal position and, like, not talk to anybody. And I just want to give up and I want to do nothing. Um, so, yeah, uh, the support from every listener or YouTube watcher or whoever it is um, has been phenomenally tremendous and thank you. It would not be without all of you guys that I would be here doing any of this. Um, and when you do email me and tell me that, I do read it. It does mean a lot. Um, and often I do print that out and tape it up on the wall as a reminder because there are those days where I am just like, I can't do this. What am I doing? What's the point? This sucks. This is terrible. So... <laughs> Um, your kind words go very far and, um, help bridge the gap. Yeah. And, and there's always doubt. There's always doubt. Whoever you are, no matter what you're doing, you have doubt if you're doing the right thing or you have those days you want to give up. Right. Um, and that's where that support network and that, that base of encouragement. So where can people, really uh, where can people find out more about you? <laughs> You can go to SuccessfulFashionDesigner.com and that will get you to everything. Um, yeah, that gets you everything that you need. Uh, if you have more questions, I will throw out this. I think I mentioned it earlier, but we have just started incorporating a mailbag episode into the podcast, which means once a month I field questions for an entire episode. I will answer questions that people send in via email. Um, they can be questions for me personally. They can be questions about working in the industry, launching your label, whatever it has to do. Send me your questions and I will uh, pick the best ones and answer them once a month on an episode. I just recorded the first one last week. It's going live soon after this episode. Is it? Yeah, yeah it actually is. That's right. Um, so email those to podcast at soheidi, S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com. We changed from successful fashion designer because it's really a lot to type. So emails are always now something at so Heidi. Uh, the website and everything is still successful fashion designer. But uh, email any questions you have to podcast at so Heidi.com. 
Um, I would love to answer them. It's a better way for, for me to answer them. And it's a better way for you, for me to answer them because that way the answer gets to a lot more ears and a lot more people than me just answering a one-off email. Yeah. Um, and sometimes somebody a, else has more information to add too. Yeah. Yeah. And I also just don't have the capacity to answer all the questions that I get in email. So this is a way to compile them and then once a month kind of hit as many as I, I can of the best ones. So any questions I would love to, um, to answer them on the next mailbag, mailbag episode. Uh, so send those in. Cool. I think that's it. Awesome. All Thank right. you so much for having me, Mark. <laughs>